continuing this section on monastic training and, and this next part is called Toraman. One of the distinctive features of the training developed by Lung Po at Wat Bapong were practices aimed at thwarting the monks' desires in order to encourage them to look directly at the ways in which craving produced suffering and how letting go of it led to peace. The Thai word for this kind of training is Toraman. And uh, there's a footnote on that which says, uh, in everyday usage, Toraman has lost its sense of training and now refers simply to torture or torment. So to thwart means to uh, obstruct or to frustrate or to, uh, to get in the way of. Quoting the Four Noble Truths, Lung Po would insist that suffering ceases not through turning our back on it, but by fully comprehending its nature. And uh, Lung Po is speaking here. If you don't want to suffer, then you won't see suffering. If you don't see suffering, then you won't fully comprehend it. And if you don't fully comprehend suffering, you won't be able to remove it from your mind. The reason we don't free ourselves from suffering is precisely because we're always trying to get away from it. If you want to put out a fire, you have to pour water on the flames. Running away from suffering simply makes things worse. You can climb on a plane, but the suffering will go with you. You can dive down into the ocean, but your suffering will dive down with you. You may think that you're escaping it, but you're deluding yourself because it's right there in your mind. You must constantly reflect on Dhamma to firmly establish it in your mind. Dare to practice. Living with friends or with a large group should be the same as living alone. Be fearless. If anybody else wants to be lazy, then that's their business. Listen to the teachings. Don't argue with the teacher. Don't be stubborn. Do what the teacher tells you. Don't be afraid of practice. You will work it out by doing that. Of that, there's no doubt. Uh, in this uh, simple comment, um, you can climb on a plane, but the suffering will go with you. You can dive down in the ocean, but your suffering will dive down with you. Uh, just in that uh, short expression of things, uh, probably most of us here have uh, given that a try. Probably spent uh, a few years, maybe a few decades, uh, trying to uh, uh, say get away from suffering in that in that way. And uh, often it's it's a quite an, uh, an innocent and natural mistake to make. You think that by moving to a new town or getting a new job or getting a new haircut or uh, <coughs> whatever will uh, will do the will do the thing. And uh, certainly for myself, um, I'd grown up in in, uh, in England. I travelled a bit around Europe in my childhood and teens. And uh, <clears throat> so finishing university, and I had this idea to, to uh, go out to the Far East and to, and to travel. And, uh, and in exactly this way, I had, uh, and in England, I had all sorts of uh, neurotic hang-ups and difficulties and and I was going to go to the east, my journey to the east, get on the get on a plane, fly out to uh, to the far east, and then it was going to be a spiritual journey. So of course, that's the you know, you're going to leave all of your worldly problems behind, and then it's going to be spiritual because you're in Asia. You know, so you're going to these uh, these holy places, to the the mystical island of Bali, to be mystical, and uh, <clears throat> it was a. Uh, um, a big surprise to me when I, I found there I was in the mystic east and I was being dis, d surprised to discover I was not mystical at all and that you could be in these holy places and your mind was anything other than holy it was just the, the same old mind that had been uh, say, knocking around in, uh, in England and uh, I remember it being a, uh, a, there was a kind of surprise like oh, I thought I was going to leave all this behind how come it's just the same how come all this... Uh, is is here as well, sitting on this tropical beach and uh, in this uh, beautiful place, and yet still my mind is is miserable. How come? And um, uh, in, in a way, it's when you look at it like this, it's extraordinarily stupid <laughs> that we would assume that you just get on a plane and you you leave your troubles behind, or you move to a new town, or you get a new job, or a new partner, or a new ajahn, or you know you 
And finally, when I get to, to shave my head, then it'll you know, off, off comes my hair and then all my troubles are over. But it doesn't quite work that way, <coughs> more than a haircut or a plane ride. But I, I and uh, it was uh, for myself. It was quite uh, quite helpful be, uh, to be in southern Thailand, because it was uh, uh, after I'd left England. It was about um, three or four months after I'd left, and I was staying on this uh, uh, one of the last undeveloped beaches in Phuket. Uh, so a tropical beach, beautiful palm trees, warm seas, the tropical fishes, didn't have to go to work, had a, 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 a small amount of money in my pocket. And uh, and it was like paradise. Just, uh, those of you who can, who can remember the Bounty Chocolate Bar adverts from the, the Brits from the 1960s and 70s, the Bounty Chocolate Bar adverts, the taste of paradise. It was just like that. So here we are in paradise. This should be bliss. This is what being in heaven is like. And... Uh, and then sitting on that beach and realizing, well, it can't get any better than this. This is, uh, the conditions here are absolutely perfect. There's nothing you can blame your suffering on. So it was helpful to me in some respects because if, you, if you're miserable and insecure and upset uh, and everything around you is completely perfect, then you realize it's only coming from one place. In, in the inside and therefore that's the the thing that needs attention it's not a matter of changing the backdrop or you know adjusting your address or your haircut or your your clothing it's um it's something else altogether so uh it, it was one of those situations where you feel simultaneously stupid and very relieved that uh, yeah how, how on earth did i think that i was just going to get on a plane and move around the planet and, and uh, everything was going to be radically different obviously it takes more than that but it's a common mistake to make, as Lumpur highlights, and many of us in the human realm spend entire lifetimes and huge amounts of time, energy, money, and, and effort trying to get to that, that sweet place, the, the, um, the taste of paradise, and then being slightly confused. Well, well, it should have been right, but maybe it's not quite the... This isn't the best holiday destination, or this isn't quite the best town, or the, the right house, or the right wife, or the right husband, or the... You know, the right monastery, uh, the the right uh, haircut, and, and so we just keep trying for another one, and then another one, and another one, and we just keep on going. So that keep on goingness to the next thing. This is sangsara. That uh, that is endlessness. So uh, like endlessly chasing the horizon, trying to get to that place where I'm going to be. Uh, uh, everything's going to be uh, uh, perfect for me. Uh, and uh, on that same. Um, in that same spirit, I often mention that uh, in the the San Francisco Bay Area, they often have quite philosophical bumper stickers. You know, they put a little message on the back of your car for to for other people to read. And one of the popular ones a few years ago was I, I'm now I've been here for quite a while now, but maybe ten years ago was <clears throat> me somewhere else tomorrow, finally happy and okay. That was the sort of spelling out the dream me somewhere else tomorrow finally happy and okay and that's the the kind of thing that keeps us going on and on and on and on and uh, is the that unconscious um uh, say pursuit of that is what is the driving force for samsara so to continue the training involved lumpur requiring his disciples to do things that they didn't want to do and not to do things that they wanted to do. He emphasized that going against the grain was not to be seen as the goal itself, or as a practice that would inevitably lead to some form of purification. The rationale for the training was that it offered the opportunity to observe the way in which craving and attachment are often invisible if followed, and give rise to tension and frustration if opposed. Bearing with the discomfort mindfully, and looking closely at it, reveals its impermanent suffering and not-self nature. The practice took many forms, often quite mundane. On more strenuous work days, for example, a kettle of sweet drinks might arrive from the kitchen. So there was not a standard uh, tea time every day, like here we have a whole servery covered with, with goodies, or a, the uh, common room uh, with a um, covered with uh, lots of different kinds of... Uh, 
uh, delightful things. But uh, <clears throat> so the monks and novices, nuns didn't have any sort of, uh, of their own supplies. Everything was shared communally, and so. Uh, if a, a kettle of sweet drink was put out, that, that was the only sweet drink that was there for several days. So, for example, a kettle of sweet drinks might arrive from the kitchen. On a cold winter day, the drink would be hot. And occasionally, Lumpur would allow the kettle to be placed under a tree in full sight of the monks, without acknowledging it. Monks could not help but observe that, although up to that point they hadn't been feeling particularly tired or thirsty. Now, suddenly, they could think of nothing other than enjoying a hot drink. If the monks worried about the drink getting cold before they got to drink it, they would immediately begin to suffer. As long as they kept their ears open for the invitation from Lumpur to stop work, the time would drag intolerably, and they would suffer. The moment they gave up and put their minds on the work, thinking, if there's a drink, there's a drink. If there's no drink, then that's all right too. Then the suffering would cease. This is the, the uh, essential engine of the Toraman practice. Toraman is a teaching strategy that demands that the students have great confidence in the teacher. If they harbor the slightest doubt about his wisdom or compassion, they'll find it hard to follow this path consistently. The fortitude needed to bear with the unpleasant comes from believing in the ultimate benefit of doing so. Lumpur was able to command that faith without difficulty. So, for example, I would not try that here. Okay. <laughs> The assembled Venerable Sangha, okay, we'll have a drink when I feel like it. Uh, you know, all supplies of tea, coffee, sugar, honey, uh, and everything of that nature will be under my command. Maybe once a week we'll have a cup of tea. Everyone agree that's a good policy? I think there might be a few travel requests. The transport officer will be inundated with uh, <laughs> urgent needs to travel to Chithurst or to Milne tomorrow. At least trips to go and see the dentist in Berkhamsted <laughs> with a trip to the, uh, the, the cafe along the way. Lumpur would tell the monks that when they were put in uncomfortable situations and began to feel oppressed, it was important to recognize that it was the defilements, not they themselves, that were being opposed. Only if they refused to assume ownership of the unpleasant sensations would they benefit from the practice. At mealtimes, he would say that the defilements want the food hot and fast. Dhamma wants the food cold and slow. <laughs> when you don't get the food you want, how you want it, when you want it, how does it feel? On weekend mornings, lay supporters from Warin and Ubon would arrive with food to offer for the Sangha's daily meal. The food tended to be richer than the usual daily fare, and it was an open secret that many monks looked forward to the weekend with pleasure. On days when the food was plentiful, Lumpur liked to sit talking to the donors after the food had been distributed while his disciples sat, bowls full of food in front of them, struggling with feelings of restlessness, greed and hunger. Finally, after a period of time that to some of the monks had seemed excruciatingly long, but had in fact rarely lasted more than five or ten minutes, Lumpur would raise his hands and begin the, the blessing chant, Yatha, Varivaha, Pura, signaling the beginning of the meal. On some days, there'd be an extra twist of the knife. It was Lumpur's custom to clear his throat before leading the blessing. This cough became an ardently awaited sound. <laughs> Knowing this, Lumpur would occasionally cough in his usual way, pause for a moment, and then continue talking. <laughs> One fabled hot season Toraman practice involved late morning meditation sessions in which the Sangha would dress in their full set of robes and sit in a room whose door and windows were closed in order to produce an almost overpowering heat and stuffiness. Before long, the monks would be soaked in sweat. Lumpur, sitting in their midst, would encourage them, Come on, you spent nine months in your mother's womb. This bears no comparison. So that would be uh, in the hot season. So... When you're, and the, in those days, the, um, the eating hall was quite a, a long, sort of narrow, uh, narrow building. And so he would, they had these um, sort of metal frame doors, like on a, like an old uh, uh, sort of elevator, lift doors. So he had these, these metal grilled doors, and he would make a big show of pulling the metal doors closed and kind of locking them. 
And after the meal, so you're full with, with food, and then you can all locked in, and then you put on all of your robes, and then sit there, so deliberately in, in the heat to be sort of cooked. <laughs> and then, of course, it was entirely up to, to Lumpur to ring the bell and, and open up the doors and let people out. So that could go on for quite a long time, because the meal offering would be at about uh, 8 or 8.30 in the morning. So then by the time that the food, everyone's eaten and the food uh, has been say, <coughs> shared out and the bowl's cleaned and so forth, it would be um, something like 9.30, maybe 10 o'clock. So then you could be sitting there from, from 9.30 to 10.30 or 11 or even noon before, ding! So you could uh, be uh, well and truly uh, baked by the end of, uh, of the session. In the cold season, the practice was reversed. Lungpur would lead the monks in nighttime meditation sessions wearing only their thin cotton unksas and the lower robe, while the windows were open to receive the bitter north wind that cut its way through the monastery at that time of the year. At least, monks comforted themselves, it kept them free of drowsiness. Lungpur's Dhamma talks are renowned for their capacity to fulfill the Buddha's injunction to instruct, inspire, encourage and exhilarate their listeners. But he did not always intend them to be so uplifting. Sometimes they played a different role in the training. Quite often, Lumpur spoke at great, rambling and repetitive length, simply in order that his audience would learn how to deal with the discomfort of sitting on a concrete floor for a long time, but an indeterminate time. During the Rains Retreat of 1980, when his health was already in decline, he gave a seven-hour-long discourse. <laughs> at one point during the talk, he looked around to see a number of the monks in front of him starting to squirm, and he said, Are you suffering? Can you find a place in your mind where you don't suffer? One particular challenge these long talks posed was their uncertain duration. Monks could not tell themselves to grit their teeth for a certain length of time. Lumpur might stop after two or three hours, or he might also carry on until the 3 a.m. wake-up bell. It was a memorable lesson in how the perception of time conditioned the ability to bear with the unpleasant. How letting go wasn't an ideal to work towards in the future, but an immediate necessity. Physically, it was especially hard for the Western monks, as monastic etiquette prohibits listeners of a Dhamma talk from sitting in the cross-legged posture. The only permissible posture on such an occasion is papiap, or the polite side-saddle posture. While the Thai monks had been sitting in this posture all their lives, it was to the Westerners an awkward and unbalanced way to sit, and certainly not a posture that they would freely have chosen for a seven-hour session. But during the course of such long talks, the advantage the Thais possessed through familiarity with the posture would fall away. They would join the Westerners in being able to see the arising and passing away of a whole spectrum of emotions. Interest, inspiration, indifference, boredom, drowsiness, restlessness, irritation, resentment, and even occasionally acceptance and joy. The, pol the policy of frustrating desire covered every area of monastic life. If Lumpur knew someone wanted to go somewhere very badly, then he wouldn't let him go. If he badly wanted to stay, he might well be sent away. Showing greed for requisites was sure to lead to grief. So also thinking of these... Uh, these uh, uh, say, these long Dhamma talks, um, there's a, a frequently recounted story that Lumpur Sumato tells um, uh, in many, many of his teachings where he um, was uh, sitting, it was uh, uh, on the, one of the observance nights and, uh, and Lumpur Cha was, uh, it wasn't even a formal Dhamma talk, but a, an old, an old uh, traveling companion of Lumpur Cha's had come to visit and uh, and they'd had the uh, the recitation of the monastic rule, and Lumpur and this other monk were just sort of sitting chatting, and uh, the the recitation was from about six to seven in the in the evening, and they just sat, and then all of the lay people are gathered in the the sala uh, waiting for Lumpur to come and give them a dhamma talk, but they just sat there in the little um, the chapel, the, the small um, room that was used for the, the recitation, and they talked until eight o'clock, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. And just the two of them chatting together, and all the monks have to, and novices have to stay in the room, sort of sitting politely. And so Lumpur Sumato was um, 
would be describing him sitting there and getting more and more uncomfortable. You have to be sitting in the side posture and then uh, they're just, just rattling on. They're telling old stories. They're talking about the mango crop. You know, they're, they're kind of swapping and uh, gossiping tales about other monks and 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And so then through that period, then Lomposomedo is indeed going through uh, indifference, boredom, drowsiness, restlessness, irritation, and in, in, uh, bored, and then irritated, and restless, and indignant, and then just sort of weeping with, <laughs> please just stop, you know, can't we go? And just kind of begging and whimpering. And then, uh, and then he said, finally, at, uh, at about half past two in the morning, he just gave up. He said, okay, well, however long that is going on and on, maybe let's keep going till dawn or, or after. Who cares? I don't mind. We can just sit here forever. It's all right. And he said, as soon as that thought formed in his mind, Longpo said, oh, look, it's nearly three o'clock. Time to finish. <laughs> so, so, and then he gave Longpo some a big smile. Like, Got it, tomato? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, that... Um, this is a sort of part of the um, situational uh, quality uh, of training, and that um, he uh, <clears throat> would would see what would be, say, challenging or difficult for people, or, or where they were attached. So another uh, another story that um, uh, say in this uh, giving people the tasks that they don't want. So there was one particular monk that was a very very gifted. Meditator, he was, uh, had a very um, sort of intense powers of concentration, and but he, he was really uh, not just really uh, fond of practicing meditation and getting into those states of absorption, but he was also quite happy for everyone else to know that he had these abilities, and that uh, so that he would quite often sit in public places, sort of sit for hours and hours and hours without moving and and so forth, and so that uh, Lumpur Cha saw that this monk, even though he had some spiritual skill, he was really attached to the idea of it. So he made him his attendant. And so he would just, uh, uh, Lumpur would be sitting under his kuti receiving people and giving teachings. And he would just never let this monk even close his eyes. He would just, you know, every five minutes he'd send him off to go and find someone or collect something or take something away. And, and so that, and as soon as the monk got the chance, he sort of sit down and close his eyes. And then Lumpur would say, yeah, go over here, go over there, get this, do that. So he, he could never never sit still, and that was his way of of helping him to break his attachment to to samadhi and uh, and his his sort of c- conceit about being wanting to show off all his his abilities. And the story goes that uh, on one occasion, Lumpur took him on a, uh, a six day long road trip, and uh, and Lumpur didn't sleep at all. He never slept, and so. Uh, and of course, if the ajahn isn't isn't resting, then the the attendant has to be awake as well. So after six days and nights without sleep, then they're, they're traveling in this this pickup truck, and uh, you know, Lumpur was was uh, very accomplished himself, so it didn't bother him. But the the attendant monk, attendant monk by this time is sort of reeling with with uh, exhaustion and kind of delirious through uh, lack of sleep, and and he's sort of nodding this way and that way. And, and uh, and uh, Lumpur will keep thumping him in the ribs and saying, "Wake up! You're disgracing the sangha. You're, you're falling asleep all over the driver. What kind of an idiot monk are you? You can't even stay awake." And really shaming him very, uh, very grandly and publicly uh, to to help him to break through this sort of look at me. I'm the champion meditator. So he deliberately put him in a situation where he couldn't uh, couldn't perform and. Uh, and was there, and and also you know, not out of cruelty, but helping him to break through that kind of um, conceit and self-obsession. A Toraman regime is not without weaknesses. It's limited by its inherent elitism. It provides the best results in a small and highly motivated community. With a larger and more varied group, the stresses and strains experienced by the less motivated members can adversely affect the whole, creating a grim atmosphere in the monastery. Young monks can push themselves too hard or become competitive. In addition, a teacher known to train his students in this way may be so intimidating to outsiders as to seriously reduce the number of people who are willing to take up the training in the first place. 
If they found out that tea was once a week in Amravati, we probably have fewer visitors. Maybe the guest nun, the guest monk, would be happy about that. But ideally, the trainer in Toraman demonstrates that he himself is able and willing to do everything he demands of his students. This was very much the case with Lumpur, who made a point of leading from the front and of not only sharing in the hardships of his students, but exceeding them. However, as Lumpur got older and his health declined, he relaxed a number of these practices. It's debatable as to what extent this change was influenced by the waning of his own physical powers, and to what extent it was a response to a larger Sangha that lacked the intensity of the earlier years. Whatever the case, the underlying principle remained constant. And this is uh, Lumpur speaking here. Practice means going against the stream, against the stream of our mental activity, against the stream of defilements. Countering a stream is always difficult. It's difficult to row a boat against the current, and because of the flow of our defilements, it's difficult to do good. We don't want to go against the stream. We don't want difficulties. We don't want to have to endure. Mostly, we just want to go with the flow of our moods, like water that follows its natural course. That may be comfortable, but it's not the way of practice. Practice is characterized by going against the grain, going against the defilements and the mind's old ways. It demands mindful suppression, increasing our patient endurance. Many of Lumpur's most rousing exhortations concerned the struggle with defilements. He once gave a simple rule of thumb any monk who had not broken down into tears of frustration at least three times in his practice hadn't been putting forth enough effort. That would apply to nuns as well. So if you haven't broken down three times in tears of frustration, keep going. <laughs> Don't follow the mind's desires was a constant refrain. Train it. This practice means putting your life on the line. His disciples were to push through obstacles, recognize their lack of substance, and realize that they were paper tigers. If you're sleepy and you want to sleep, don't. After you've got through the drowsiness, then you can sleep. On one occasion, he exhorted the Sangha on the battle against defilements that could occur between arms round and the daily meal. So, <clears throat> so Lumpur himself also, he was uh, not just setting an example, he also... Um, it was because of his own uh, working with a, a large array of defilements that he developed uh, a lot of wisdom. And so that uh, many of these uh, stories or, or the kind of wisdom comes from his own uh, say, uh, efforts at dealing with uh, his particular uh, cravings and fears and uh, doubts and, and uh, desires. So again, Lumpur is speaking here. Sometimes you get back from arms round and you're sitting there meditating before the meal and you can't do it. Your mind's like a mad dog, slobbering with desire for food, and it won't contemplate anything at all. Or else the contemplation can't keep up with the greed, and so you just run with the greed, and then things really go downhill. If your mind won't listen and refuses to be patient, push your bowl away. Don't let it eat. Train your mind. Torment the defilements. Don't keep following them. Push your bowl away and leave. If there's so much craving to eat, if your mind won't listen to you, then don't eat. The saliva will dry up when it realizes it's not going to get any food. It'll have learned its lesson, and in future it won't disturb you. It'll be afraid of going without. It'll be silent. Give it a try. If you don't believe me, then see for yourself. So this reminds me of uh, another story that um, took place. Uh, Ajahn Sundra was involved in this. Um, and uh, the uh, in the in the years when she was in white, and there was um, so this was at Chithurst back in about 1980 or 81, and uh, Albert Knuckles, remember Albert? Uh, so this a friend of the sangha. He wanted to offer a, a meal to the whole community. It was I think it was his birthday, and it was a special occasion. And so uh, Albert was very old, and he wasn't a cook, so he had. Uh, inveigled, he persuaded the the, uh, the Anagari Kars, uh, Sister Rochana, Sister Sundra, Sister Chandasiri, and Sister Tanisra. They were brought in as the the uh, the cooks for this grand dana offering, and so uh, 
Things were, were usually fairly simple in, in those days uh, at Chithurst in terms of the food side. But you know, Albert wanted to, run, to lay on a really splendid banquet. And so he had, um, he sort of gave a, a lot of money for lots of food to be bought. And so then there was a lot of cooking. And usually, as you know, we only allow cooking in the morning. but uh, And then the afternoon, the, the kitchen is sort of not used for, for cooking at all. But because you know, we were, had a soft spot for Albert and he wanted his whole big meal offering to be created, so uh, Ajahn Sumedho gave permission for the nuns to be cooking in the afternoon. And anyway, this whole cooking session went on and on and on for many hours um, into the night and into the night. And uh, <clears throat> so I, being a very sort of ardent and um, a sort of dedicated renunciate type monk, was sort of scowling like this is ridiculous. This is all about food. This is kind of this is appalling. I don't know why Ajahn Sumedha has given permission for this. This is really inappropriate. Grumble, 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 grumble. So I was very sort of indignant and uh, irritated by the whole thing. I thought this is this is all uh, a lot of nonsense. <laughs> Another of the monks, uh, who shall remain nameless, got really excited, <laughs> and and he kept sort of <coughs> keeping up on the cooking preparations and was. Keen on to, keen on finding out what was being prepared and and uh, was was very uh, the, uh, uh, interested and enthusiastic about the whole thing. So I was feeling even more negativity towards him. This is disgusting. He's supposed to be a senior monk. He's supposed to be setting an example, and and there he is getting all kind of frothy and and uh, salivating over this this food. Grumble, grumble, grumble. So anyway, cut a long story short. The uh, the next day, uh, when the meal is being offered. Then um, one of the things that had been offered and made by uh, the uh, the sisters was some cream donuts, homemade cream donuts with with whipped cream. And so once the the, the food had been been passed out, we had the food in our, in our bowls. Then uh, the this particular monk who'd been getting very excited about the food. Uh, <clears throat> then usually we're, the, the rule is you're supposed to have all of your food in, in, your, in your bowl. In, in those days, it was, it was not the done thing to take any of your food out and put it in your, in your bowl lid, but uh, it was all just in the bowl together. But at the beginning of the meal, and then this monk took this cream donut, large, overflowing with cream, cream donut, took it out and, and sort of put it in, the, in his lid so they could have a special kind of special uh, display uh, and have, uh, <coughs> prominently um, uh, yeah, I say, carefully uh, arranged so it wouldn't soak up any kind of nasty juices. It would be this perfect cream donut that he could begin his meal with. So then uh, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, he led the, the blessing chant and I'm sitting there, oh, this is ridiculous, this is stupid, this is horrible. So then the aforementioned monk, then the first thing he does is he picks up this donut and then takes a big bite out of it. And then, um, of course, you know, we're supposed to be paying attention to our own bowl and not, <laughs> not looking at other people. But then I noticed that he sort of took, uh, he took a bite and then he had this sort of uh, very uh, sort of composed expression on his face. And then he took another bite and then he put the donut down and he pushed his bowl away. <laughs> and I thought, wow. <laughs> all those negative thoughts I had, you know, this is really impressive. He saw his mind was good, just like this. His mind is getting out of control. He's been up. He, he, he couldn't sleep the night before. The nuns were cooking all night. He was awake. He was awake imagining the food. And so he pushed the bowl away. And I thought, wow, gang Mark, this is really impressive. You know, he was so attached. And he, he saw his attachment and he's, he's given up on the whole thing. So... So then, as uh, I thought, well, I was impressed with him, so I thought, that. so I stopped thinking about him. Meanwhile, I'm eating the food, and about uh, a quarter of the way in, I realize, actually, this is really delicious. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. This is, this, is really, uh, this is really delicious food. So thank you very much to the sisters for doing a fantastic job on the cooking. So anyway, after the meal time is over, then I, I go and... Uh, have a word with this aforementioned senior monk, and I said, uh, uh, and so I said, uh, Ajahn, I have to say, I was uh, I was really feeling negative towards all the kind of excitement you had about the the meal, but I was really impressed with how, you know, you just sort of took a couple of bites and you pushed it away, and he said, "What did your donut taste of?" <laughs> I said, 
Well, it was kind of whipped cream and, and donut. It was really, I mean, they did a really, really good job. It was really nice donuts. And he said, it wasn't salty? And I said, no, no, it was, just, it was delicious. <laughs> and he said, My, mine was filled with salt. I, 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 didn't, I didn't push the food away because I was being a seti. It was just, I was about to throw up. I had this mouthful of salt and I was about to puke. So it was all I could do just to sit there and hold my guts in without kind of vomiting all over the, the asana. <laughs> and it had turned out that uh, I think Tanisra had been mixing the, uh, the, um, the, the whipped cream and, and, and in one particular batch she would put salt into the cream instead of sugar. And Ananda, oh sorry, well, yeah, well, <laughs> the, the, that, the, monk who sh- the monk who shall not be named, not, not the current Ananda, this is the previous Ananda, um, he was the one that got the salt. And nobody else got it. So something very fishy was going on there, but there was a, a very profound Dhamma teaching supplied by the universe that particular morning. So, anyway, to continue. He would talk a lot about courage, of daring to, to go against the defilements, and how it was faith that takes us beyond the fears of hunger, pain, and death. He pointed out how fear of suffering hobbles the mind, and how to hobble is to kind of have your, something tied around your legs so you can't walk properly. <clears throat> fear of suffering hobbles the mind, and how reflecting on what's really essential to life can overcome that. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. Reflect on what's most important in life. What is that, the most important thing? It's the thing without which you die. That's what's important. And all you really need to keep alive is plain rice and water. Everything else is a bonus. As long as you have a sufficient amount of rice and water to eat every day, you won't die. Be frugal. When you lack something you want, then ask yourself whether the lack of it will kill you. Take enough rice and water to give you strength to practice. Don't worry about whether or not you get anything in excess of rice and water. The important thing is that you have enough of those two things to keep you alive. And there's no need to fear of going without them. Arms round, even in the poorest villages, will provide a monk with a lump of sticky rice. If it starts to drizzle while you're practicing walking meditation, then think of those times when you were farming. Your working trousers still not dry from the previous day and first thing in the morning having to put them on wet, going down to get the water buffalo out of the pen below the house. Outside, all you can see is its, is its neck, but then when you pick up the rope, you realize it's covered in shit. And then the buffalo flicks its tail and splatters you all over with even more of it. As you walk to the fields, your foot rot is playing up and you're thinking, why is life so much suffering? Why is everything so hard? Think of that. And then ask yourself, what's the big problem about walking meditation in the rain? Working in the paddy fields involves much more suffering, and you've managed that. Why can't you do this? You have to dare to do it, dare to practice. If you've never been to a cremation forest, then you should train yourself to go. If you can't manage it at night, then go during the day. Go later in the day, go often, and after a while you'll be able to go there at dusk. So, of course, in the West, most of us have not grown up looking after water buffaloes. So you can translate that to the the trials and tribulations of working in the office where the, the photocopier chews up your your paper, or that uh, somebody uh, steals your paper clips off your desk, or, the, or you're uh, in a, uh, instant, a warfare with uh, your your department uh, your department head, or you have to kind of do a little bit of internal translation whether you're working in an office or a hospital or a school. Or, uh, but uh, you can do the <laughs> do the renderings yourself by going against the grain. Monks could discover for themselves that the fears and limitations holding them back were not fixed and unalterable things, but merely the results of habit that they had the capacity to overcome. And Paul was blunt about those who only put effort into what they enjoyed and avoided what they disliked or feared. They were deluding themselves if they thought they were practitioners of Dhamma. No matter how long monks had been in robes, quote, if you are still following your likes and dislikes, you haven't even started to practice. 
There was no alternative to total commitment. If you're really practicing, then, to put it simply, it's your life, your whole life. If you're really sincere, then why would you be interested in whether someone else is getting something that you're not, or if they're trying to pick a quarrel with you? There's nothing like that in your mind. Other people's actions are their own business. Whether other people's practice is on a high or a low level, you don't give attention to things like that. You pay attention to your own affairs. It's when you have this attitude that you find the courage to practice. And through the practice, wisdom and profound knowledge will arise. If your practice is in the groove, when you're really practicing, then it's night and day. At night time, you alternate sitting and walking meditation at least two or three times. Walk, then sit. Sit, then walk. You don't feel like you've had enough. You're enjoying yourself. Discourses would switch back and forth between descriptions of the well-practicing monk and pointing out how far his students were from that level and how much work they needed to do. He gave an analogy for his students who were still following their likes and dislikes and not facing up to challenges. It's like your roof has a leak in it over here and so you go and sleep over there. Then it starts to leak over there and so you shift somewhere else and spend your time lamenting, when will I ever have a nice place to live in? If the roof was to become full of leaks, you'd probably just move out. That's not the way to practice. If you follow your defilements, things just get much worse. The more you follow them, the more your practice declines. And then would come the encouragement. But, if you go against the grain and keep practicing, eventually you'll find yourself amazed at your mind's incredible appetite for practice. At this stage, you become completely uninterested in whether other people are practicing or not. You just constantly work at your own practice. Whether people come or go, you just keep doing your work. It's this looking at yourself that is the practice. Once you're fluent, then there's nothing in your mind except for Dhamma. In whatever area you can't do it, wherever you still have an obstruction, the mind circles around that spot. It won't give up until the problem's been cracked. And when the problem's been dealt with, then the mind gets stuck somewhere else. And so you work on that. And you don't give up until you've cracked that one too, because there can be no real sense of ease until these matters are seen to. Your reflections need to be firmly focused on the issue at hand, whether you're walking or sitting. The problem that the meditator now faces becomes all-absorbing. He feels the weight of an unresolved issue or an ongoing responsibility. Lumpur said it felt like being a parent. You leave your child to play by itself upstairs while you go down to feed the pigs. While you're doing that, you're anxious all the time that your child is going to fall off the veranda. It's the same with our practice. Whatever we're doing, we don't forget our meditation object for a moment. As soon as we become distracted, it immediately beats at the mind. We keep following it night and day, not forgetting it for a moment. Practice has to reach that level for it to be successful. It's not an easy task. As the practice progresses, it gains momentum. There is less need for the teacher. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. To begin with, it's necessary to, to depend on the teacher and his advice. When you understand, then put it into practice. It's up to you to do the work yourself. If you are negligent in any area or something bad arises, then you'll know for yourself. There will be the knowing. It will be pachatang, to know for yourself. The mind will know naturally whether it's a big fault or a small one. It'll try to look at just where the fault lies. Try to do its practice. So any, there's quite a bit I've read there. So any questions, reflections? Clarifications? I think, like, if we, like, practice to go against my habits, sometimes I find myself kind of creating this kind of hatred about myself. Like, I keep doing the same thing again and again. I see the bad results of it, but sometimes I cannot help it, doing it. And sometimes I find myself, like, uh, criticizing myself overly by loose balance. So I like to a little bit here more about how to be careful with this kind of self-hatred or 
not too much, like Aquarius, like Hades. Well, one of the most uh, helpful teachings that Lumpur gives is, um, he says, 50 to 70% of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. You can follow that. So, so the, the, there's a recognition of, say, that there's the mind is going into self-hatred. And you, but part of the mind is, no, is recognizing, oh, this is self-hatred, this is unnecessary, this is, this is just a creation of the, the mind, this is just a, an obstructed habit. But recognizing that doesn't just switch it off. So I, I feel that's one of the most helpful and powerful of his teachings, is exactly that. So that you're not saying, oh, it's fine that that habit carries on. But what, it's, what you're doing is you're recognizing that in the, seeing the habit, it's the, the quality of awareness is what enables that habit to be broken, to, to come to an end. You can't just will it to end. But by uh, over and over again seeing the, the painful results of it, then the, the, you're recognizing this is a bad habit, like, like being self-critical and such like. Then <clears throat> it's the, the, the power of that awareness is the, the balancing agent. So the, and that's one another one of the reasons why patient endurance, why the that the paramita, uh, kanti paramita is the is one of the most powerful agents in the practice is because it's that being ready to to see that that bad habit and think oh no, here it goes again and oh I wasn't going to do this again here I, you know there it goes again it's doing this and just be able to see it carrying out its uh, its usual action going to its usual result, and then feeling the painful result of that. And, uh, but, uh, in a, and it's, almost, it's, it's almost more effective the less commentary there is about it. The less, uh, uh, when's this going to be over, or this is really awful. Or the, in, uh, and another of Lumpur's comments is, until you really know the pain of suffering, you won't let go. And so it's that full acknowledgement of the painfulness the painful result of that grasping, then that's what helps the, the grasping to not happen. It, the, if, the, if the thinking mind jumps in and says, oh, I shouldn't do this, I should do more of that, how can, I, how can I stop this from happening, then that very busyness to try and sort of get in there and do something, then, then that, that creates more of a, a tangle, I find. So the most helpful thing is to let that be a raw and it's almost non-conceptual recognition of, okay, the mind having gone in this direction, how does it feel? Ow! It's painful. And then let's let that carry its own message. So to, if you take that, that as a reflection, it's 50 to 70% of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. In a sense, it's recognizing the addictions that we have, the, the recognizing where the well-worn tracks are, you, you you know where they are. You know that what that ha that habit is, and then through seeing that and the painful results of it over and over again, then slowly it it wears its strength wears away. It, it erodes, and and it's uh, and it's interesting to, to at least how I find it is that eventually it's not even a, a letting go. It's just that something in the heart that goes, I can't be bothered with this. <laughs> it's like it, it's not. A thing that has been owned that's being let go of. It's just the, the heart does not incline to, to pick that up. It's like I'm not going to go down there. I just I know where that goes, and not from a, a sort of I shouldn't go down that track. That's a bad place to go. From the sort of uh, super ego type, you know, the the, the finger wagging mind that says shouldn't go there. You know, bad nun. But uh, rather, it's just that why would I want to pick up all this extra stuff? It's just burdensome and, and pointless, and 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 so it's it's not really a letting go. It's more like a, a not picking up, or it's things that fall away on their own. So it's also with with the, um, the this sort of area of Toraman and uh, the the forest tradition practice of of endurance. It can sound a bit sort of grim or, or um, forbidding, but it uh, the reason why it's such a a central uh, theme of monastic training and, and, and the, the way the practice of the forest tradition is because it's through that uh, very sort of deliberate meeting of dukkha, like uh, they're quoting the, the, uh, the, the Buddha uh, from the Dhammachaka Sutta right at the beginning, uh, that 
the first noble truth, uh, the um, uh, dukkha is to be uh, is to be understood or is to be apprehended. Lumpur would translate it as to to stand under. You have to kind of like standing under a shower. Kind of you're 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 receiving the the dukkha. You're acknowledging it. So I like the word apprehending. You're receiving it. So in the Dhammachakra Sutta it says parinyayanti. It needs to be recognized. So the mind that says, oh, it's not that monk who's a problem, or the cold weather, or this in, this injury in my in my leg, or what. That's not the problem. The problem is this dukkha. The mind is saying it shouldn't be this way. Or when's this going to be over? That the the recognition. Oh, this is dukkha. This is not wanting things to be this way. That's what this is. So it that first noble truth is that direct recognition of that quality of dukkha of not wanting things to be the way they are so idang dukang this is dukkha that's the, the the entry point so that the mind is not negotiating with it trying to get away from it or complaining about it or blaming it on some particular thought or feeling or emotional memory or sense experience but recognizing oh this is what this mind is doing with the experience of the present it's creating dukkha it's creating wrongness aha that's parinyayanti dukkha is to be received or understood or, or apprehended, and that that's the entry point. So the this uh, Thoraman practice or that that it's it's all pointing towards. It's not trying to make the mind suffer more, but pointing towards what is the mind doing with the experience of this moment, and starting off with that sense. Oh, it's it's uh, negotiating or it's complaining or it's trying to get away from this. That that's what's happening. So, uh, to give another example, so uh, many years ago uh, during the winter retreats here, um, the we often used to use the uh, the retreat center shrine room as a meditation hall um, for the for the winter retreat. The uh, temple didn't exist in those days, and uh, and so uh, a few times during the winter retreat we'd have a, a, a four hour sitting. So that that would be the 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 rules of the four hour sitting were. Everybody has to show up, uh, no exceptions, uh, and that for the, the bell would be rung at one o'clock in the afternoon, and then uh, it would be rung again at five o'clock, and everybody had to stay on their mat for the four hours. You could change your posture, you could, you could even stand up, but you couldn't, you couldn't leave your spot. And uh, that was the, the, the format for the four-hour sittings. So we'd have a couple of those maybe two or three of those two or three of the couple at least a couple of those during the winter retreat time so uh, again i was uh, in that this particular retreat i was in my sort of super ardent um ascetic monk phase so this is probably uh 85 or 86 uh, I, f I forget which i was i was doing the the sitter, the sitters practice which is like not lying down at night i did this for about three years so i didn't lie down for, for three years it was also freezing cold here, so I developed a very close relationship with a night storage heater in the retreat center shrine room because <laughs> the rooms were freezing. So I, was, I wasn't lying down anyway, so I, I, I would often stay up late in the in the in the retreat center shrine room and just lean against the night storage heater. It's the warmest spot in the monastery. I think. So anyway, the four-hour sitting, uh, as I was in my super ardent phase, I thought, well. I'll um, not only will I do the four-hour sitting without moving, but I'll show up early. So I, I got there about quarter to one, sat down on my mat, and uh, and so and I thought, well, Lumpur Cha uh, during the very first rains retreat that he uh, he led before Wat Pong began, um, they would have uh, an all-night sitting every night of the rains retreat. <laughs> that was the that was the regime for the monastery. So. So it was an all-night sitting every night, and then for the last month of the of the rains retreat, it was an all-night sitting every night, and no one was allowed to move at all. So from like six in the evening to five in the morning, you're not allowed to change posture. That was Lumpur Chao's first rains retreat. He did kind of lighten things up a little bit after that. <laughs> so it was uh, so for everybody in the monastery, it was a mandatory sort of ten-hour, eleven-hour sitting without moving every night for a month. So I thought, well, if they can do that, I can at least sit here for four hours without moving. And so I hadn't done that before as a sort of particular determination, but 
<clears throat> and no, I, I inherited very flexible hips from my dear mother. So uh, sitting uh, in the lotus posture or half lotus was reasonably comfortable for me for at least an hour. But having had that thought, okay, I'm not going to move. For, I'm not going to change my posture for the next four hours. Immediately, there's so much tension in my body that within like five minutes, I'm, <gasps> I was in far more pain than I normally would be after an hour sitting. But I'd made this resolution, this determination, and being part of the Dutanga tradition and the, the using this sort of Toraman practice, I thought, okay, well, I've made this resolution. I'm going to stick with it. So <clears throat> for the first hour. Then I just sat there with this sort of intense feelings of, of pain in, in my, my legs. And uh, <clears throat> then got into the second hour, and then it drifted more from just sort of ardent, uh, sort of, uh, ardent and uh, determined dealing with pain to just the kind of extended whimper. Like, <laughs> <laughs> poor me, poor me, poor me. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> So this kind of long, whimpering um, uh, sort of mind state. So that was the second hour. So just getting towards the end of the second hour, so it's getting towards about three o'clock, and then I suddenly realized, hang on a minute, there's 60 other people in the room with me, and I've been so obsessed with my own suffering, I haven't even thought about anybody else for the last two hours. So I opened my eyes and looked around, and I thought, Oh my goodness, it, it was kind of a, a, a shocking thing that uh, I'd totally forgotten everybody else existed because I was so focused on my pain. So I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. I'm really, I'm really self-obsessed. <laughs> so I thought, well, even, I'm gonna, it's going to be painful and it's going to be miserable, uh, but I'm not going to move, so at least I can do something useful. So I thought, well, I, instead of just moaning and whimpering about this pain in my legs, uh, maybe I'll just sort of spread loving-kindness to everybody. And because when I looked around the faces of everybody else in the hall, they, they looked pretty grim too. So I thought, <laughs> at least I can, you know, spread a little brightness um, and do that. So then, so I started just doing a meta practice, and lo and behold, I started to feel a bit more comfortable. You know, my body started relaxing. I thought, oh, pain levels seem to be dropping down. So I also started send, sending loving kindness to myself as well. And I thought, hey, this is really neat. More meta, less pain. Great. So as soon as it was about me and getting you know, and, and negotiating with my pain, and immediately the whole pain level cranked up again. So okay, okay, it's got to be sincere. <laughs> it's got to. Be, it's not even a kind of wangled sincerity, but a sort of maneuvered sincerity, but a total, uh, a genuine sincerity. So anyhow, um, uh, so I just did this uh, this me uh, meta practice and was spreading loving kindness to everybody in in the, the room and, and to myself and the pain in my body got, got less and, and less and and so then to my amazement uh, when uh, Lumpur Sumedho finally rang the bell at five o'clock my first thought was oh I was enjoying that so that was a very powerful lesson that um, uh, uh, that the this kind of Toraman practice is not just about learning how to grit your teeth really well. It's not just about uh, so just forming a powerful resolution, but it's how to change your attitude. It's how to, uh, in a sense, see where we make problems for ourselves, where we create difficulties, and what our habits are of having, having how we deal with difficulties, like uh, dealing with, with physical pain and uh, recognizing what the habits are, recognizing we don't have to do it that way. We can relate to these things differently. And then seeing that we do have that capacity. We, do, we can change our minds. We can change the way that we work. And then seeing how how within that the space of that afternoon, not that I never experienced pain ever again, but, ra but rather just seeing how when you're not obs obsessing about yourself or you're not just sort of negotiating and maneuvering, but there is uh, an openness uh, of attitude and, a, and a, a quality of acceptance and a, uh, a, a, a genuine sort of surrender that you're not doing this to get that, but rather it's a, a, there's a sincerity there, a complete sort of surrender to the, the present moment. Uh, as it's uh, as saying here, that um, there, <coughs> if it's, if it's uh, sincere, 
then there's there's very good results that come from that and and it wasn't just that there was no pain in the body when that that thought when the bell rang at five o'clock what i was enjoying was that uh the heart filled with well wishing that was what was most enjoyable was that the, it was the 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 freedom from negativity and, and self-concern that was the, the the most enjoyable thing So just to finish off with one last little passage, which is called Joy in the Dhamma. It was considered normal and not necessarily a bad thing in itself that monks putting forth effort to overcome defilements became tense at times or felt frustrated. And Paul would say that if monks felt no inner resistance to their practice, then they probably weren't doing enough to oppose old habits. He would, nonetheless, keep his finger on the pulse of the community and a clear eye out for signs of monks becoming obsessive or depressed. If he felt the atmosphere was too intense, he would invite the sangha around to his kuti for an informal gathering. On those evenings, the atmosphere was warm and intimate. He would often relate anecdotes from the old days or tell funny and uplifting teaching stories. However long the sessions lasted, and even if they went on until well after midnight, everybody was still expected to be at the three o'clock morning session. Nobody would want to leave. One monk summed it up. Walking away from Lumpur's Kuti one time, I thought, these are the nights I'll remember when I'm an old man. So on that note, finish there for this evening.